Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey Construction Zone Knockrainer. <laughs> but by the way, not really a joke audience. I just wanted to apologize ahead of time. Our, you probably won't hear it. Mark talks most of the time, and our editor will probably make sure that my side doesn't come through. But uh, just know I have days of construction going on at my house. So Corey's mansion's being remodeled. Gosh, I wish it was a mansion. Sure doesn't feel like it when it's this construction zone. Unacceptable. But anyways, on today's episode, we'll be discussing the latest order from CISA, uh, our favorite organization of the Department of Homeland Security, an update on a really aptly named class of vulnerabilities, and then potentially the death blow for an organization that's made way too many rounds in the news as of late. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and gallop on it. So we start this week with an update from our favorite government organization that I feel like in the last month we've probably talked about them on every single episode. Or maybe that's just because I did like two webinars with some uh, related activity from them recently too. But anyways, uh, so we start this week with the discussion on CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency out of the Department of Homeland Security, which I guess, actually, I want to pause for a second. First off, to congratulate myself on getting their acronym right for the first time uh, on the first try ever. I can't tell if you, you kind of did. It has a sizzle to it, a CISA. We asked, well, I, I always called it CISA, uh, but they, they, I think they used the term sizzle for the way you pronounce the S, CISA. Okay. Well, in that case, it should be a Z and not an S, but anyway, I, I, I agree. It definitely was not phonetic to me when I heard their official pronunciation when, when I had the privilege to speak with them once. But we, we literally asked because everyone was giving me heck for the way I used to pronounce it. <laughs> Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency. Why does it have to have security in there twice? Yeah, it's just cybersecurity. <laughs> yes, it's it's weird. Anyways. Uh, so but it's are... a good organization. We're oh, happy fantastic. that the government does it. <laughs> yep. Uh, as we frequently talk about, they're responsible for basically assisting federal agencies and federal contractors, and really just any any organization in the United States on staying ahead of whatever the latest security trends are. Like They put out their alerts pretty regularly now, um, cataloging a lot of the threat actor activity they see around different campaigns or different specific exploits or systems they're seeing targeted. And they tend to put out pretty good advice too, like often at a high level, but still applicable and good advice. Uh, we rag on them every once in a while because, I mean, it is literally the same advice we give out time and time again for a lot of these threats. But that's just because it's, you know, the stuff we tend to see. Um, but the uh, so the Department of Homeland Security and really CISA as a whole has the authority to issue compulsory directives to federal agencies in the forms of these binding operational directives or BODs, as they call them. Basically, they're orders that come down from the DOH through CISA that all federal agencies, at least the civilian agencies, not the military ones, have to abide by. And last week, CISA issued BOD 2201, which is titled Reducing the Significant Risk of Known Exploited Vulnerabilities, um, which uh, it's honestly, it's a pretty short directive, uh, but it's short but sweet, in my opinion. Um, so it 
basically it creates this catalog now of exploited vulnerabilities that's maintained by CISA. And they started populating it with just 291 flaws. Um, and now it requires all federal agencies within 60 days to review and update their internal vulnerability management procedures to basically create a process for ongoing remediation of vulnerabilities that are listed in this catalog from now until the end of time. Uh, they're giving them six months to remediate any vulnerabilities uh, that were assigned CVEs prior to 2021, but only two weeks to remediate anything else. So any CVE starting 2021 going forward. Uh, and they also noted that these default timelines may be adjusted uh, in the case of, quote, a grave risk to the federal enterprise. So I guess, first off, it's pretty nuts. Like, I think this is long overdue, first off and foremost, like having a, a centralized database of basically flaws that CISA has seen exploited in the wild targeting organizations. Yeah, the va the value of this, by the way, it doesn't only include like like they have different requirements on when you patch depending on the date of the vulnerability, but it includes vulnerabilities that are old, like 20, 2016 at the very least. So similar to even if you ever see our internet security report, we comment that there's a lot of really old vulnerabilities we see repeatedly in our network attacks or our IPS hits. And and this just goes to confirm that what, what I like about the the known in the wild list is there's thousands and thousands, there's probably over a thousand vulnerabilities a year, well over a thousand. And we all have to prioritize things. What's important about this list is just the fact this is the high priority stuff. This is stuff that's being actively exploited that people see. So, you know, you might have an excuse that it's hard to keep up for patches for lots of business reasons. But assuming that's the case, at least pay attention to these ones because they're the ones we ultimately know are the most severe beyond just the CV, you know, their severity score because they're being used. They're the ones that bad guys are using. So I, I just, before you even get to their, their directive for how the government needs to patch these and when, I just think this known exploited vulnerability catalog, which anyone can get to, is a, a good thing to go look at. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned thousands of vulnerabilities, like honestly, try tens of thousands. The uh, National Vulnerability Database, or like the organizations responsible for handing out CVEs, ended up increasing the the number from four characters to like six a couple of years ago, I think, because basically they're running out of CVE IDs uh, because of all the flaws they're tagging. It makes them. sense because there's thousands of programs, you know, there's a lot of these tiny little programs no one's heard of that can also be vulnerable. So there's a lot, a lot of stuff out there. But yeah, the, the importance is if, if there is any reason that you can't get to every patch right away, these are the ones I would do first. You know, even before you look at the things that say they're CVSS critical, this could be the first run because they're actually being exploited. Yeah, 100%. And like there's quite a few that we've talked about on this podcast or on Secplicity. Like there's some Apache Struts code execution flaws from this year. There was that iOS forced entry remote code execution that we talked about, I think, last month or the month before. Uh, there's just about every single Microsoft vulnerability we've ever discussed in there, including all the Office exploits and including some of the new Office exploits. It, like you said, Pulse it's- Pulse Secure. I mean, anything that's had a news story that, oh, attackers have used this vulnerability to grab a bunch of credentials and are looking for people that haven't patched. Anything that's shown up in the news, it shouldn't be surprising what's on this list because 
usually you'll find the vulnerability that uh, led to that news article. And their, uh, their threshold for adding new flaws is actually kind of low. It's basically there's three requirements to have it put in this catalog now. First off, it has to have a CVE assigned to it. Uh, second, they have to have evidence of it being actively exploited in the wild. And then third, there has to be a clear remediation from the vendor. So like a patch, for example. And that's all it needs to get added to here, which kind of like go flows into the next bit here where for anything 2021 onward, whenever it's added, you get two weeks to patch it as a federal agency, which I mean, that's great. And honestly, for some of the critical ones, that's far too long to give for it. But just yeah, a yeah. blanket two weeks for some of these is honestly kind of nuts. Like that's I feel like it's good, like nuts in a good way. Like I like that they're giving them this really short, you know, you have to have it patched in two weeks. And the reason life. it's nuts is there are a lot of business cases that do sometimes make it hard for really important production servers to to do something without breaking other processes. But they're they're taking a hard stance that hey, we get it, this website or whatever may need to, your, your Struts website may need to do the government function that it shares with everybody, but at this point, <laughs> the risk is not worth it. So you have to find a way to update that website in all the ways necessary. Uh, I'm using website as a random example, by the way, to, to get to this patch, however you need to get there. Yeah, so part of this binding directive is they have to come up, like all these agencies have to come up with a system for being able to respond to these quickly uh, is what it comes down to. Um, basically, they have to have a process in place for being able to patch within two weeks for anything that comes on here. They also need to establish a process for sharing any information they have on these vulnerabilities back with CISA. So CISA actually has this continuous diagnostics and mitigation tool that they developed uh, that has some dashboards in it where basically it's this overall vulnerability and threat management platform for federal agencies that they're all supposed to be adopting this year now. And through that tool, they need to report back any activity they see around these vulnerabilities and also what the response is to them. So I like it. Like, it feels like this is stuff that honestly should have been on going on for quite some time, but it's good to see this kind of standardized like requirement for patching and reporting and everything around vulnerabilities finally come to federal agencies by the, by the way do we know what CISA's I don't I should have done some research for, but but what is their teeth to this meaning yes they they have been given the role to do this to be able to send out these directives but if some federal agency doesn't meet them how can CISA enforce I mean there, so there there could be a, a mechanism but I'm not sure like the, the funny thing with policy is if there's no teeth to enforce it, if you're not given the power, if the same agency that's asking for the change is not given the power to fine a, a government or withhold funding or do something uh, to another government agency that's not following the directive, there could still be some misses. So you know what I mean? The... So I, I'm, I'm curious what they will do when they do find agencies that don't follow this to the letter. The teeth is like it's Title 44, Chapter 35, Subchapter 2, Section 355.53, which basically says the Department of Homeland Security Secretary has this authority to issue these directives. Now, I see what you're saying. What is it like? What's the ramifications? Yeah, yeah. If they but but, but if it? you don't follow it, what what happens? <laughs> I honestly, I, I don't know. Do you start throwing agency directors in prison for violating federal law like? What I, I don't know, right? or 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 it's in 
and by the way, I'm not I'm not mandating that you should be throwing these guys in the law. I'm just, but I'm saying that you know, the government has given itself security bars to reach in the past, even before CISA was the organization when it was maybe just uh, U.S. CERT or DHS. And they had the right, you know, mandates that said, we can define policy. Here's what our required policy is for governments. And then every time it was tested, lots of different government organizations got D, <laughs> you know, Ds or whatever, meaning they didn't follow half the mandates. So I, I just, uh, that, that is the issue with the, you have to have, hopefully you never have to use the teeth, right? Everyone would rather lead with a carrot than teeth. But even though you say these are the ones that can tell you what to do, unless they can actually do anything about it when you don't do that, it, you know, I'm, I'm sure CISA like will. I'm sure CISA will point out at the very least the the comp the agencies, the different government organizations, if they didn't meet this requirement. But are they the ones that enforce? Do they report it to the DHS themselves? Is there another? It'd be interesting to see if they can actually apply any teeth if people don't live up to this standard that like are required I, to follow the directive. Admittedly, I don't know how that like enforcement works between agencies. I'm curious if any of our listeners happen to work or had to have worked with a federal agency and know. Like, cause, yeah, if you guys know, it'd be good to know. Really? Because how I think it... it's the failure. The, the failure of any sort of security policy is if the folks that you're saying are able to make the security policy can't really do anything if, if other organizations don't follow it. It, it, it's kind of a no-win game because with like working with private organizations like the government can obviously fine them cancel contracts throw them in prison if they're fine out of compliance but internally like does like kamala harris come and break down your door and slap you or something like i don't exactly <laughs> that's a, yeah, and I, I think we're saying the same point i mean the yeah. reason pci and effect and gdpr are effective at getting people to actually change uh, you know, you could argue everything in PCI was something companies were doing before. Why didn't they? Because it cost money and there was no other than the threat of being hacked and losing their business. They could gamble with no downside. And yet now that PCI says, fine, you you if you don't do this, we will one, legally fine you and two, you won't be able to use credit cards anymore. <laughs> You know, that that is teeth, and that's why PCI actually works. Same with GDPR. You know, if GDPR, if, if we didn't think they actually had the ability to find companies for huge amounts of money, the companies that don't like all the work it is to to be GDPR compliant just wouldn't do it. So like 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 you say, I, I assume there has to be some some you know, whip or teeth. I assume someone has to have the authority to do something. But yeah, when it's you against your own organization in a way, the government against another government, you know, who who is that authority? Does CISA have that authority? Is it you find that organization, which is weird, you're taking the budget that's been congressionally given to one organization and taking it away, and then where does it go? I don't know. It, it's just, I, I, I love it on the surface. I love everything about it. I just feel like, like everything else of things you should be doing anyways, people don't do them unless the directive also includes some sort of teeth that allows it to be enforced and i'm reading that section right now and honestly not seeing anything in here of like it's all here's what they're allowed to do here's blah blah, blah here's how you, you handle it but nothing like and if you don't follow it here's what happens kind of thing maybe that, i'm assuming there's some general like 
rule of if you it's probably there i think like you say if anything in the if anyone works in the government or just happens to have read and know we'd, we'd be interested to know uh we love the idea of this we we think the concept of having to prior you know patching you, you know we guys we push it we also know it's hard to keep up so any way that you can prioritize like this known wildest version is great but uh Will it really change the government? All depends on, <laughs> or will it? And the same for private, by the way. Like, just because NIST says here's the way you should do stuff doesn't mean people do it that way until there's some compliance that says this is the way you do stuff. Otherwise, we can take millions of dollars from you. <laughs> and with CISA, they even say like only federal civilian agencies are required to take action, but they do strongly recommend all private businesses and all state, local, and tribal governments to also basically follow the same rules because they are they're good rules i mean i get that they're not without cost for an organization uh like you know it takes time and resources to actually adhere to these patching strategies there's risk to downtime if something goes haywire but at the same time like cybersecurity is a massive issue for everyone yeah country. So, <laughs> there's risk to not doing it yes. and they're in multiple millions of dollars if you get ransomware so either way though uh on CISA's website now they've got this catalog that Seemingly, they will continuously update with new flaws as they're added. And they even have a little column in there for the deadline for when you need to patch for these different flaws. By the so, way, I assume everyone has systems to track their patch level already. And I, I guess maybe that's overly <laughs> optimistic. But as soon, just so you know, besides the cool, if you just Google known exploited vulnerabilities, CISA, you'll find the catalog. But they publish a CVS version of it too. So the main point I'm using is you have you know, patching tools you could probably import this list in your your patching software knows all these vulnerabilities but maybe with that cvs it would help you prioritize vulnerabilities by always pulling in this list and letting it have top priority in some cases maybe we can chat with our uh, spanish engineers and see if there's like a little checkbox we can add into panda for patch management for hey you are now out of compliance for cisa's vulnerability management catalog uh either way though like cool stuff from CISA and it'll be interesting to see how this continues to evolve. It feels like they've had quite a few recent directives around this too. So I'm sure this isn't the last of their attempts to improve cybersecurity across federal agencies. Um, so moving on now, uh, early last week, researchers from the University of Cambridge published a white paper on a new class of vulnerability that they dubbed Trojan Source, which first off, hats off. That's a great pun. Uh, and... Honestly, I'm not going to spend too much time making fun of the name for this vulnerability because they did a pretty good job. Uh, so the flaws involve a feature in the Unicode character set called BIDI, which stands for Unicode Bidirectional Algorithm. Basically, it's this algorithm to facilitate alphabets that are read from right to left versus the left to right that at least most of us English speakers and Latin alphabet users are familiar with. Um, so real quick, though, about BIDI. Basically, the order of characters in memory as you're writing a program or saving a string or receiving data that's going to be displayed in your web browser, uh, that order that those characters exist in memory isn't always the order that they are rendered in your browser or software or other tools. Uh, so Unicode characters use this BIDI algorithm to determine the correct order for displaying these characters and words called runs, as they call it, on the screen when it comes time to render it. Basically, Latin characters are typically rendered left to right, uh, English, Spanish, French, all those, while other languages like Arabic or Hebrew might be rendered from right to left. 
And each Unicode character actually has this directional property as a part of it that tells the software whether it is, quote, or what they call strongly typed uh, left to right or right to left, or if it's neutral or weakly typed, which is typically spaces or punctuations. So basically, for any given character, any application that handles Unicode uh, knows whether to display those characters left to right when it prints it out or right to left. Um, and this algorithm also handles full sentences, for example. So for an all English sentence, words go left to right. So word one, word two, word three from left to right is pretty easy. Uh, but if you have an English sentence or a majority English sentence that has like an Arabic word in the middle of it, these algorithms are actually smart enough to know that the sentence as a whole should be rendered left to right. The letters within the English words or runs as they're called should be rendered from left to right. But then that single Arabic word in the middle of it, that single run should be rendered from right to left. Um, so pretty cool how that actually works on the whole when you're rendering some of these things on the web or in a in a compiler like we'll talk about here in a second. Uh, but this BIDI algorithm isn't perfect on its own. Uh, in some cases, you need to override it. And to do that, there's actually a handful of special characters, like control characters, uh, within Unicode that override some of this functionality. Where basically for any given group of characters or words or sentences or whatever, you can plop in these control codes that tell Unicode to, or whatever system's interpreting it, to do it in a different way. So I could force a English word to be written out right to left instead of left to right. I could force a sentence full of words to be written out right to left instead of left to right, all using these control characters and these control codes, um, which is, again, pretty cool how it's able to do that. So with that explanation, the researchers found vulnerabilities in this uh, because by using these control codes, some functionality within different applications uh, can render out code in a way that is actually different than the way it is processed within that application. So they gave some examples of source code, for example, uh, in compilers, where when you're developing a project and writing out source code, you can add in comments that the compiler will ignore. Uh, it's typically a way for you to explain what a complex looking function is supposed to do. It's something that I admittedly don't do often enough in the source code I write, uh, and I feel bad for Trevor when he comes in two years later to try and figure out what the heck's going on. But with these comments, you're using special characters, so like three quotation marks on either end of the, uh, the comment you want to write, or like a slash and an asterisk together, followed by an asterisk and a slash to note the end of the comment, where within this block, uh, the compiler won't parse any of that. It's basically just there in the source code to help the developers uh, and readability in that case. That said, even though compilers don't process these comments, uh, they also don't process these formatting control characters like the BIDI override controls prior to parsing the source code. And what this means is you can create this difference between what the developer sees rendered as a comment and the actual bytes in the encoded source code that's evaluated by the compiler. Um, so. Honestly, this is one of the times where I wish our podcast was a video podcast because there's a really easy way of showing exactly how this works that's a little more difficult to just describe using words. But basically, um, one of the examples they put in their white paper is this function of uh, responsible for subtracting funds from a bank account and then returning. And inside the function, there's this seemingly innocuous looking comment in there that just 
describes what it's doing. It says, uh, so quote, 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 to start the comment, subtract funds from bank account and then return, quote, quote, quote. So it's just a comment that says that. Um, that's what it looks like when it's rendered in the uh, compiler and the source code in your IDE or developer environment. But in reality, there's a bitty uh, control code in there that can move around those quote, quote, quotes at the end of it and force the part of the uh, the actual comment to really be processed outside of the comment itself. So basically, you can move around little bits in there so that suddenly something that looks like it's a part of the comment really isn't a part of the comment. And when it comes time to compile, it'll be compiled as if it's pieces of the actual code. Again, man, I'm going to put something in the show notes to kind of show exactly what this is, because it's really easy to show with just like a picture, but really difficult to explain. Um, so they surmise that an attacker could abuse this to basically hide code that looks like a benign comment within source code uh, when it's rendered. But in reality, some of those runs, those words are flipped around once the biddy overrides are ignored, which causes some of the comments contents to be parsed out outside those blocks. Um, they gave some examples for like checking admin access or subtracting from bank accounts like this, where the rendered code looks completely different than the actual code that the compile compiler will run. Um, so, man, that was a lot. Basically, it boils down to this flaw affects almost every single programming language and many platforms involved in rendering and handling source code. I think that reached out to 97, something upper 90s uh, vendors and people responsible for source codes to handle disclosure of this. It's pretty nuts how widespread this potentially is. Uh, and it's basically like that the name is apt in this case, Trojan source, because it can be a Trojan horse of hidden code within there. Like it's already difficult enough for me to look at source code and say, oh, that is obviously malicious in there, where now it's even more difficult that some of these comments could really be malicious code masqueraded as a comment in there. Like this opens up a whole nother avenue of supply chain attacks, for example, or making it more difficult to spot supply chain attacks. It's nuts. Like I think the latter. I, I'm going to be Mr. I'm actually playing devil's advocate, but I I agree. I mean, the, the severity of this, part of the, the large impact of the severity is how much it affects. But when you start to get into real world, I, I'm less worried about this that first it starts with I, I i guess maybe open source people need to care more about it but if you're talking about typical source code to be able to exploit this you already have to be an insider or or inside the network with access to source code and while this makes it easier for you as you say if you're a supply chain attacker that did break in and already did all the necessary steps to get to someone's source you can at least hide it longer but the truth is i i questioned the ability of some of the people to catch the insider attacks where the source code change is just you know plain text it's not leveraging this this uh, unicode or this this uh issue the biddy issue so I, I, I feel like uh, while the scope of it, how many things and, and the fact it should be patched no matter what is a big deal. But I think in the real world, one, the fact that you have to have access to the source code in the first place to leverage this somewhat limits it in the real world. It just makes the insider attacker able to hide things better or a by uh, include inside attacker to someone that has already breached enough to have credential log into source code in the first place. 
Uh, I guess it is probably more concerning for open source code where anyone's allowed to touch the code. Uh, but then the other thing is because of some of the, I, I think comments are one of, while, while you're right, the example of how you can do it in comments, to do something bad, you still need to have some code that does that thing bad exactly how it is. And, and there are limits to, and, and you still need, while this is going to be able to hide some aspects of things or trick you into thinking that maybe the code you see in a comment is not really a comment, you're still going to have to put some sort of malicious code there, you know? So there, there are certain cases where they made obvious examples where it can be, but it, it's, you're, it's hard. You're not going to be able to, to plant every bad thing you would want to in source code using this trick without still giving away a few, you know, even though you're hiding aspects of what you're doing with these character types, I, I, I just feel like it, it would be, it's a little harder. Right. There are this some isn't limits. Like a, you're not going to be able to hide a, a ransomware uh, functionality inside an application using this, for example. It's more of you're able to potentially affect the logic of the application and cause the logic to behave differently, where I think their example of like checking if a user is an admin, for example, and a function around that is absolutely something that could be targeted by this, where you could affect how that function checks, make it return at a different spot. Or, or, or yeah, I think, that, I, think you, I think that was a perfect ex uh, example, Mark. I think that really helped me in that you can't add code that does whatever you want very easily with this. But one of the simple tricks that a SQL injection, by the way, a different type of code, but still a SQL injection does is when you're doing that stupid one plus one trick or one equals one trick, you're not doing anything other than making a Boolean result always return the thing you want rather than one or the other what it should be. So that level of thing where you can maybe take say there is a variable that's looking for doing one thing if the Boolean is true, you could force it to be true <laughs> by using this trick. You, you can trick the logic in a way that you might be able to force the outcome to always be one thing, despite the fact that the original intention was to be one or the other. And that could have big implications. Everyone that does know the one equal one trick, usually that means you get every record into a database instead of just the one you're looking at. So... There, there's definitely high impact potential for this, but I think you're also, I, I think the, the way you put it that I can't just write a bunch of code to do exactly what I want. That's different than, you know, it's not, it's not me changing the logical result of some function that someone wrote. It's me trying to do something new and different. That would be much harder to hide and probably impossible with this. But I love your example of you can change the result of logic to do something not intended. And in some cases, a simple change of always equaling one answer is a big security issue. Yeah, I mean, business logic vulnerabilities are still pretty massive. Like that's one of the flaws that was exploited as part of the exchange server proxy logon flaws and part of the uh, the solar wind or not solar winds, the uh, Kaseya incident as well. Basically, if you can trick it into doing something it wasn't expected, that's often enough to break it considerably. And I, I agree with you. I think that the open source community is where we would see this the most, where you know, random people can contribute code to a repository. Obviously, it goes through review typically and they look for explicitly uh, malicious code in there, but it's just yet another thing that these reviewers will have to check for. Like, not only can you just, you, you can't just look at the code anymore, you also have to check to see if there's stuff hidden in the comments now with these special formatting characters that you're 
IDE is hiding from you because it's displaying or rendering them in one direction versus the other. And even though I um, think it would be harder to exploit in a private code situation because you have to still break in, I do appreciate and I think it's good that you point out it makes the already hard to find supply chain attack where there's someone that has broken into your network and has fully credential access to your source code. That's already hard to find because they're making changes as somebody else already. But now this could just make it even harder. So I do appreciate that part. Yep. And to like to that point, some open source communities have already begun auditing a bunch of their code to look for any potential attacks. Like WordPress's security team just put out a blog post where they said they scanned through both WordPress core and every single plugin hosted on WordPress.com uh, to look for these bitty control characters. And they actually found over 10,000 matches for these Unicode control characters. And they manually reviewed every single one of them, but found no evidence of actual plugin logic being altered. Looks like it was just a lot of legitimate use for these. Because again, like these control characters are there for a reason. They're there, there to help um, close gaps where the, the algorithm isn't able to correctly render different languages in a way that you want them to in an application. Um, so I feel like like this is something that just, I, I bet there's a way to like create an automated tool that will just you know throw an alert anytime one of these characters shows up in source code. And then you can investigate that and sign it off as good or bad. Um, but again, it's just another thing that people that review source code are going to have to be sure to be on the lookout for. Otherwise, you might run the risk of having something wonky go on in your application. Uh, pretty cool find, though. Like It's another one of those interesting, I wouldn't have really thought of that being an issue until, wow, that's clearly an issue kind of flaws. Um, so great work from those the two folks from uh, University yeah, of Cambridge that identified this. And it's, it's almost like a very interesting new class, I mean, similar to uh, Ghost and Spectrum, you know, it's it's just, uh, we knew about Bitty Floss before in a different context, but to, to find a new class of way it affects many source, you know, compilers, period, is definitely interesting. Yep, 100%. Uh, so moving on to our final story, and I guess just update for the week. Um, so the United States Department of Commerce has officially added NSO Group and a couple of other vendors to the entities list. Uh, so NSO Group being that organization that uh, out of Israel that developed the Pegasus spyware that's been making all the news recently, which us in the security community have known well about for the last several years. Um, they are now, uh, all American organizations are now barred from working with NSO without a license granted from the government, which the Department of Commerce says they will not grant. Um, in the press release, I'm glad you defined the entity list because it's kind of funny to call. I mean, the isn't entity, list. entity literally anything that can be a distinct and independent thing? Yep, <laughs> I'm an entity. Exactly. Uh, my coffee cup is an entity. <laughs> I guess maybe existence. So, well, no, I an organization could be an entity. Anyways, but yes. The, I, I like to talk about it as like the export restriction list, even though that's the bad guy not, list. Yeah, yeah. The don't work with these people. We don't like them list. Uh, so in their press release, the Department of Commerce said, quote, NSO Group and Kandiru, which is one of the other organizations, uh, were added to the entity list based on evidence that these entities developed and supplied spyware to foreign governments that use these tools to maliciously target government officials, journalists, business people, activists, academics, and embassy workers. 
These tools have also enabled foreign governments to conduct transactional, uh, tran transnational repression, uh, which is the practice of authoritarian governments targeting dissidents, journalists, and activists outside of their sovereign borders to silence dissent. Such practices threaten the rules-based international order. Basically, like we know that Pegasus has been used to target journalists and other activists, and the government is saying, okay, no more doing business with them. They're bad guys. Um, honestly, like it's kind of I felt like this was a bit of a long time coming. It feels like like things have been slow starting to snowball for NSO group now that the cat's gotten out of the bag. So I, I, I maybe I glossed over if you said it. What's what's really interesting about this, while I think we kind of we agree that the NSO group uh, we, we should talk about what the NSO group says, by the way. But what's really interesting about this, to my knowledge, them and Kanduru or whatever, it's the first Israeli companies. Like the the people that or the organizations that tend to show up on this entity list tend to be either terrorist organizations or or companies that are in nations that are adversarial to us, meaning you mentioned one Russian, but Middle Eastern too, perhaps. Uh, and, and Israel is an obvious longtime ally. So there's definitely some political ramifications, you know, even if his company is acting as a, a, a bad actor, uh, we think, or, or the, our government anyways thinks, that the fact that it's an Israeli company is, is kind of new in my, as far as I can tell for this tentative entity list. I will also say, by the way, NSA keeps, or not NSA, NSO, the NSO group keep on saying, hey, this is just false. Uh, I, I think you'll, you'll talk about what they do to protect American citizens, but they even despite that, they claim that they only sell their tools to lawful, democratic, normal countries. The problem with that is... Uh, I think there's evidence of the misuse against them with with the activists and bad actors and, and state politicians. And the misuse is clearly coming from some of the countries that don't fall within the list that the NSA group says they try to limit to, right? Yeah, 100%. Like it's yeah. been found on phones of like journalists uh, that have now, they're now rotting in Saudi Arabian prison. Uh, it's been found on uh, journalists that have been reported against. I like the Mexican government, for example, like uh, clearly, even if like we, we believe them that they've done their due diligence to uh, make sure that only good abiding government agencies have access to this and not just randos out there on the Internet. Still, it's being abused is the biggest issue. And like if that's something you care about, it makes sense to do what you can to crack down on the ability for them to do that. Like it, it is interesting, though, like you mentioned, Israel's an ally of us, obviously, and this company is like it's. Uh, one of its biggest investors is based out of England. Uh, some of its other investors are like the state of Oregon's pension fund, for example. Like it's uh, we we have known other past investors of this company too that were America based. So yeah, and you wonder like what's the next step of this? Are like so even Senator Ron Wyden from Oregon uh, also called for NSO Group to be sanctioned under the the Global Majinsky Act, which would basically force all of these investors to divest from them it would freeze all their funds and prevent any ally in the u.s from doing any financial transactions with them including ownership like it feels like this is the beginning of the end for nso group and 
that I mean, that said, I it's I guarantee it's not the beginning and the end for the folks that work there. Like even if you kill off NSO Group, they just go start a new company that technically isn't san- sanctioned because so far it's the company and not the actual individuals in it that have been added to this entities list. Like often you'll see individuals added to it so that even if they start up a new company, it's not like a loophole. In this case, like it kind of feels like they're killing the boogeyman in this case, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're ending the actual issue itself. So it'll be, it'll be interesting. Um, at the same time as NSO getting added, though, so there were there was a Russian organization and a play, uh, company based out of Singapore that were added to. So there was Computer Security Initiative Consultancy of Singapore was added for trafficking uh, hacking tools, basically, which is another bit of an interesting tangent I wanted to highlight on and that like we use hacking tools for red teaming activities, penetration testing activities. Where's the line drawn between like selling something like Cobalt Strike and whatever got this organization added to the list? Is it basically we don't like you because you sold it to someone that used it badly? But like Cobalt Strike, every single cyber criminal under the sun uses that tool now too. It's interesting. Like I wonder. I imagine they draw the line. And just by the way, we of... we kind of and, and this is even sensitive in the security industry. And in that while we, I think you and I at least believe in having certain export restrictions or restrictions entities when it is learned that a tool is being used a lot for illegal reasons. We support the existence of hacking tools. The tool themselves are not always the issue, right? I mean, we, we want the tools so that the good guys can continue testing and the fix. We, we think Cobalt Strike or Metasploit are important tools for the, the blue teams too to understand things, even though there's clearly many malicious people that use them. But I, I yeah. I think the issue is just when money's involved and when you're starting to sell. And if the company starts to sell to, you know, in America, we can say American companies, you simply can't sell to these entities, period. You can sell Metasploit, you can sell Cobalt Strike, but we're not going to let you sell it to those folks. And Um, I bet like a lot of it is like if, you know, Rapid7 started directly selling Metasploit to actual cyber criminals, like. Just hey, you want to go hack this place? Buy this tool from us. I bet that would get them out of the list. Or the I mean, I don't know what happens if Metasploit sold or Cobalt Strike to the Chinese government, and one day the U.S. government that you know I forget what's the name of the population that uh, China doesn't love. Uh, for yes, thank you. Uh, and suddenly we find out that tool was used to attack someone there it was proven to come from an org you know what i mean then maybe metasploit would be at risk you know who knows yeah or they or they would have to adjust who they sold to (laughs) either way though like i knew it was probably getting close to nso's time to go when my grandma started talking to me about the pegasus spyware like that's when you know they've hit such big name news that and not the good kind that it's they're probably going to be on the the government's radar to get shut down at that point. That said, this isn't necessarily a death sentence on its own. Like other nations are still free to work with them. It just bars U.S. organizations. It doesn't even bar like our allies organizations from working with them either. Uh, But it does cut out a significant chunk of potential revenue for them from U.S. organizations. And it does prevent like the likes of, for example, even Dell and Microsoft can't sell computers and operating systems to them too. So 
I guess it will have some probably big effects on them, but who knows? Maybe they'll stick around or maybe they'll just fold up and come back under a different name. Either way, interesting action from the U.S. government on this end. And I, I for one, am happy that we are we do have this seeming focus, focus on privacy and security, at least in recent years now, um, from our government. We'll see if that continues going forward. But hey, one more down, 30 million more to go. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening. And you will hear from us next week.